Hey firecrackers, it's Naomi and welcome to the firecracker department. Do you know what I got to do last week? I got to perform in front of a live audience. Oh, it was so good. For those of you who don't know, we used to have a company called the National Theatre of the World and we would do improvised shows and sketch comedy. And one of the shows that we did was a show called the Carnegie Hall Show. And it was performed every week for three years in Toronto. And we called it the Carnegie Hall Show because no matter if you have three people or 3,000 people, you perform like it's Carnegie Hall to the people in a balcony, even if there is no balcony. And the boys wear tuxedos and I would wear a gown and the company is myself and Matt Barham, Ron Peterson, Chris Gibbs, and on piano, Whale and Mickey. And we were asked to go to the Capitol Theatre in Port Hope, Ontario, Canada. And we just had a blast. I mean, I cried so many times. I cried when we were reunited because we haven't performed for like, oh gosh, like eight, 10 years. And I cried on stage. I mean, the audience was small but mighty and it felt like a Broadway opening. It was so exciting. And I just miss that so much. It makes me realize like that not a lot of the noise around performing really matters. Like, it doesn't matter if I'm wearing the right dress. It doesn't matter if my hair is right. It doesn't matter if I'm feeling fat or skinny or whatever. It just matters that I get to do what I love to do. And that was extraordinary. I'm gonna post some pictures on my Instagram, but really that team of people constantly make me laugh. I was like unabashedly just laughing on stage just from pure joy and doing what we love to do. And if you are anywhere near Port Hope, Ontario, pop in. It's a beautiful theater and there's some people who really care a lot about creating art there. Rob, Aaron, it's a special place. Okay, speaking of special, oh my gosh, that segue worked better than I've ever had a segue work before. Let's hear from the one and only Lisa Lafferty and head of our writing department, and she's gonna tell you about our writing contest that we have coming up. Hello, it's Liesl here, head of the Firecracker Writing Department with a special announcement about our second annual short story challenge. Here's what you need to know. Your story can be up to 500 words, which let's face it is pretty short, but the fun part, it must contain three of the following elements. A water bottle, a blanket, a ring, a skateboard, a paddle, and or a cup of sugar. And it must include one of the following scenarios. A second chance, a reunion, and or a surprise. All of the info is on our website, along with the form, firecrackerdepartment.com. Go to the writing department page and you'll see the form there. Submissions are open now until Sunday, May 22nd. And then on Sunday, June 19th, we will be hosting a special brunch to announce the finalists and the winner will also be listed on our website, along with their story entries. The finalists will get promoted on our socials and the winner will get a nice surprise in a gift bag, let's say. Visit the website, click on the form, and enter the Spring Short Story Challenge. We look forward to reading your stories. Oh, we've done this once before. It's amazing. I love seeing the stories that come in. Please get your submissions in. And thanks, Lisa Lafferty, for all the work and Fran Caviello for all your work that you do for the writing department. Okay, on with the show. Our guest this week is Toronto-based policy advisor, yes, policy advisor, workplace consultant, change maker, film producer, and firecracker actioneer, and she's also part of our mentorship department. It's Kathleen Harkwell. Throughout the year, I'll be sitting down with core members so that you can get to know them a little bit more, because man, they work so hard for our firecracker department community, and I want you to know how extraordinary they all are. 
I first met Kathleen, I think it's really hard to tell. I think I first met Kathleen because we had sort of a roundtable discussion around uh, using vocabulary with Firecracker Department and making sure that we were being as welcoming as possible with the words that we used. And Kathleen just stepped up and in the beautiful Kathleen way, did gentle nudging to make sure that we were on track. And as I said, making people feel like this is a space that they could belong to. You know, I'm making mistakes left, right, and center. I'm just gonna say that. I will always be a mistake maker. <laughs> I think I can own that. And when we initially put Firecracker Department, the community together, it was really important for all of us that we defined ourselves as inclusive to female and non-binary artists. That was super important. That's not something that trills off my tongue. It does now, but at the time it did not. And so I worked really hard to make sure it was part of my everyday vocabulary. And I'll tell you this, Kathleen at one point just threw a text my way and just recognized the work that I was doing. And that's not her job. And I shouldn't need like pats on the back just because I'm doing what humans are supposed to do. But I'll tell you, having somebody like Kathleen, who I respect so much, just tell you to keep going, you're doing good, it really does help. And uh, especially in territory that I'm not necessarily completely familiar with. So that's how I met Kathleen. And then I was like, gotta jump in on what we're creating with Firecracker Department. And now in her day-to-day -day life, she's a policy advisor. And then she comes into Firecracker Department and just gives us some uh, beautiful advice and encouragement and nudging to make sure we are as on track as possible. And as I said, I'm making mistakes all over the place and I appreciate all the bits of learning that I'm getting along the way. It really is important to me that Firecracker Department is as welcoming as possible. And I will also say Kathleen is part of the Mentorship Department team. And again, that is a department. If you haven't joined one of our mentorship panels, please do. They're so insightful. We really try to bring you experts to talk to that you need to talk to, whether it's for networking, whether it's for inspiration, whether it's for education. We really try to make that happen for you. And so if you have been to a mentorship department event, fantastic. And if you haven't yet, please join us sometime or let us know what you'd like in the mentorship department area. Okay, now Kathleen Harkwell. Kathleen has a degree in Hispanic Studies from Trent University in Peterborough, Canada and Universidad del Valle de Mexico. Yes, as well as a diploma in screenwriting from George Brown in Toronto and she is also a graduate of Women in Film and Television Toronto's Media Business Essentials program. I mean, if that doesn't tell you that Kathleen can do it all, she can do it all. She could write a film in Spanish about media business essentials. Bam, no problem. Yeah, I did snap my fingers. Kathleen is an independent film producer focusing on queer stories and projects led by women and non-binary folks. Kathleen Associate produced the award-winning film True Love, a film written and directed by Kate Johnston and Shauna McDonald, but a lesbian with commitment issues who befriends a widowed mother visiting her workaholic daughter. Some of the awards True Love won in 2014 include Best International Feature at the Film Out San Diego Film Festival, Best Feature Film at the Inside Out Toronto LGBTQ Plus Film Festival, and Best Women's Feature at the Long Island Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. Kathleen founded with Sandra McCollum Real Culture, a consulting firm focused on building safe and inclusive work cultures in the film and television industry. 
Their tag is Real Culture, Real Change. Just love that. Don't you love it? Real Culture, Real Change. You're never gonna forget that. Real Culture, Real Change. I just love that tag. I love that tag. I love Kathleen, and I'm so thrilled to share our conversation with you. Here she is, my buddy, and one of the actioneers of the Firecracker Department, Kathleen Harkwell. And how long, remind me, it's like 15 years you've been working at Parks and Rec. No, longer than that. I've worked for Parks and Rec since I was 15. Oh, since you were 15. So exactly 15 years. (laughs) Nobody can see you shaking your head. This is audio. Nobody can see me shaking my head. No, but uh, no, I've worked for, I've worked for Parks and Rec since I was 15 years old. So that's wild. Yeah. Like the thing I think about is like, you know, normally when people are in like one position and you haven't stayed in one position because you've worked in various capacities. You've seen such huge changes and you're, but a child, like you're still so young. It's not as if like you're getting handed a golden watch at this point mm. and being like, I'm close. I mean, I have a lot of questions for Kathleen Harkwell, but one of the things is at 15, you know, I was dancing and choreographing numbers for the school recitals at 15 for you, you were handed like big responsibilities and being treated like a grown-up. How, how do you think that defined you those early days? That's a good question. I think at 15, I mean, at 15, I was responsible for cleaning the locker room. So my responsibilities were pretty limited. All right. You know, I mean, as a triple Virgo, I obviously took them very seriously and, <laughs> and wouldn't, wouldn't leave until the checklist was finished, much to the dismay of my supervisors who all wanted to go out and party. But, you know, at 16, I was lifeguarding and 16 is a very common age. That's, that's the standard uh, in a lot of jurisdictions for lifeguards. And it is a lot of responsibility, especially in Ontario, that lifeguarding program is designed to stream you in at 12. So you start leadership training at 12 or 13. And that kind of continues. It was a great job. Like even as an employer, even in, in film, I remember getting one of my first film jobs because of my experience as a lifeguard. They asked me two or three questions. I mean, it was a location supervisor job on a, like an overnight shift or something really. I was watching the garbage bin to make sure nobody was stealing the props from, oh, I'll have to think about what show it was. It starred Joey Lawrence. And so every time the poor guy walked around campus, it was just, whoa. Yeah, but I get it. I was on one of those Saw movies and they had to Mm -hmm. be careful about, like I had a a skin attachment and there was a guy Mm -hmm. walking around set stealing skin attachments to sell on eBay. So I get it. It's a big job. I paid that guy a lot of money and you totally had my plans thwarted but no it's true and but that I got they told me that I got that job because of the level of responsibility that came with being a lifeguard so right. it's been interesting how those skill sets have always easily transferred to kind of whatever space I find myself in yeah I mean being responsible gosh were you always a responsible person was that just like, oh, let Kathleen do that? She's the responsible one, <laughs> even at eight? I think that's true. I think that there was a certain amount of responsibility when I was younger. That's hilarious. Everyone knowing me will laugh. I, I'm very into rules. I like rules. I, I do well under structure. 
And so from that perspective, I think I was responsible. I, I was reliable. You know, I used to cook for the family when I was younger. I liked doing that. Um, I babysat a family of five kids. Yeah. So I do think that there was a, a level of responsibility there, which I probably cherished, you know, people pleaser. I like to, I like to do well in that space. <laughs> That doesn't mean that it was without stress. I think I was very yeah. anxious about the responsibility that I had, yeah. but certainly wanted to to do a good job. And and I liked, you know, having a certain amount of control over my world. So those yeah. positions um, probably interested me quite a lot as a kid. Did you think that your lifeguarding job would turn into a career with Parks and Rec? No, that was never the plan. When I was younger, I was really interested in teaching at one point. I was very interested in being a flight attendant at one point, particularly when I moved home from Mexico, because it really seemed like my life would just be about travel. Can't imagine being a flight attendant now. Uh, no. But it was interesting to see how those things kind of came to be. And, and my career in, in Parks and Rec allowed me some of the passion projects that I might not have had. You know, my, mm. my career in Parks and Rec allowed me to take time off every year to work for the film fest as a, as a contract employee, which I loved, you know, uh, contributing behind the scenes to the largest public film festival in the world as someone who likes to be behind the scenes and helping was a huge thing Mm -hmm. for me. And I was very proud to do that. And it fed a part of me that, you know, the daily grind didn't. So it also made me very tired, but those were the, you know, yeah, I mean, no, no child, like, you know, when you're six or seven and teachers and parents and family members are saying, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody goes, I want to be a policy advisor. <laughs> or maybe you did. Really? Maybe you did. I Little mean... tiny Kathleen Harkwell. When I grow up. <laughs> I think, yeah, probably. If I had known, if I had had that language back then, I might have said maybe. That. But you know, I, I think we can thank uh, the Amy Polars of the world for maybe making that a very real dream for That's some great. little rule followers and policy nerds out there. But it's been so interesting to move out of the operation side of recreation and into the policy realm because it satisfies that kind of constant curiosity that I have and, and the my approach in continuous learning which I didn't have vocabulary for when I was younger but it also makes me contemplate the world in such an interesting way like you know my friends will laugh we'll be out for a walk in a park and I'll stop and read a sign or we'll be in a different city and you know we were we were in Chicago for a, a friend's bachelorette weekend and I'm stopping to read the municipal signage language and but it does help me contemplate, you know, like, how do they invest in this public space? And, mm-hmm. and how do we as individual people invest in our public and shared spaces? So I would have never thought mm-hmm. about that as a, as a lifeguard. But now, you know, I, I have this curiosity of how do we relate to one another? What is our legacy? How do we steward the spaces collectively that we access? So mm-hmm. It's, you know, I mean you know that I could nerd about this. I mean, I'm here for it. (laughs) I'm here for it. Because I see that you could have probably done a myriad of things, like with your passion for for Spanish, the Spanish language, with your passion for screenwriting. And you found yourself in in policy work in Parks and Rec. So was that something that you discovered yourself in and went, oh, wait a second, this is my career. 
and I have to make sure I'm really enjoying myself? Or were you purposely making those choices deeper and deeper into that profession? Because I think sometimes sense. people fall into things and then they wake up 20 years later and go, oh, I forgot to become an opera singer. Like, yeah, I think, I mean, I think a little bit of both. I think, you know, I, I'm always contemplating what the next move is. You are. I don't even play chess, but that's always on my mind. And, mm-hmm. and part of it is that curiosity piece. Mm-hmm. When I get bored, I get into trouble. Um, when I get bored, I get mouthy, more mouthy than I am on a regular basis. And that can breed contempt. And, and that doesn't make me a good leader. It doesn't make me a good colleague. And so I know that of myself now that probably took into my thirties to, to understand about myself, but I still don't know that this will be my, my only career. I mean, it's not my only career. It's not. Um, I have, you know, I have a lot of irons in the fire all the time. Um, and sometimes that has a, a cost emotionally and physically. And so, you know, as I'm entering my forties, entering my forties, as I'm approaching my mid forties, I think, um, I always knew that my life was going to get better after 40. That I can't explain why, but I've always known that. You just knew in your heart? Yeah, I did know that. In part because I've always come to things in my own time. Mm. And when I was young, you know, I would say even into my early 20s, it felt like I was playing catch up. Like it felt like everybody around me was experiencing things faster and better and gooder, as I like to say. Um, What do you mean by that? Because I I feel like that's really... Like, I understand that, but I'm not entirely sure. Because I remember watching my high school years and being like, oh, everybody has it sorted out. I'm on mm-hmm. the outskirts organizing things. Like, I, w- I don't know about you, but I would organize student council events and then sit in the student council office because I was too pooped to go to the dance. And I, I didn't really sure. want to go. I was an introvert. So why did I want to go to that? So what do you mean <laughs> by like, like that kind of differentiation? When I was young, I wanted to be a film director. I was obsessed with Steven Spielberg. I had a production company name by the time I was 15. Which was? Kirkland Productions. My dad wanted to name me Kirkland. And uh, so that that really stuck. He didn't win, obviously. Um, I love the name uh, Kirkland. (laughs) And what I think I know is that that was named after uh, someone he admired, a photographer he admired, Douglas Kirkland. And my dad's a photographer. Um, but I might have just told myself that story. So we'll have to fact check uh, with with uh, Johnny H. <laughs> I think for me, I didn't date when I was in high school. That seemed very much in the distant future for me. Right. Um, despite my crush on uh, Jonathan Brandis, may he rest in peace. Um, <laughs> but it felt for me that folks especially socially, I think just seemed to have it going on in a way that I right. didn't. And I remember the film, Beautiful Girls. Do you remember this film? Oh. Uh, uh, Natalie Portman, 13. It's a great Demi film and it's worth going back to revisit. Okay. Great cast. It's, it sounds familiar, uh, but I don't recognize yeah. it offhand. Great cast. And, and there's a line in it where Natalie Portman's you know, young character is lamenting that she can't date this older neighbor who's returned to his hometown. Um, and that he's got exciting Saturday night plans that she doesn't have. And, and he says to her, you know, there are so many exciting Saturday nights in your future. And that line stuck with me from the moment that I saw it in the cinema. Remember going to the movies? 
uh, <laughs> person, but I, it stuck with me. And so I think that line gave me a sense of peace in a way. One of the things that I love about movies yeah. that you can find yourself in these, you know, magic spaces in the dark with a line that somebody else wrote in a dark room all by themselves. That's what it was really about for me. Like it felt like other people were hitting milestones faster. Mm. And I would say in my early twenties, I, I don't know if I came to the realization or somebody helped me get there, but certainly it, it finally resonated for me that I was always going to do things on my own timeline. And so that realization brought me a lot of peace. And, and sometimes I stray from it and I have to remind myself to keep my eyes on my own paper. But oh, it's tough. That, oh yeah, it's tough. It's so tough. Even in the policy realm, you see people climbing the ladder and you're right. like, well, wait, what? I wrote a really good staff report. I just, I have to say how much I love hearing stuff like that because I think, you know, like in the arts, creative uh, and, and professional envy is really prevalent. Like you can't not, there's not enough work for everybody to do their work that they want to do. So hearing that it's in the policy world too, of people like having policy envy. I really love that. That's really yeah. great. I was talking with someone about the parks and the, the show Parks and Rec recently, and, and I haven't watched all of it in fairness to the creators and cast mostly because the first episode was so on point right it's too close to home <laughs> so way too close to home and anyone uh who's in the policy realm who will admit to nerding out about speaking at council or committee for the first time will readily admit that that scene was uh, was note perfect that envy does exist and i think you know i think or i don't i guess i wonder more than think but i i do wonder especially as women, how much of that story was shaped for us that there were so many, only mm. so many spots at the table. And so we had to, you know, kind of I'm making elbowing motions, like we had to elbow other mm -hmm. folks out of the way. And, and I think that that conversation, you know, still happens around who's around the table and who has access to the table and, and tokenism and, and other things that we're actively trying to dismantle. But yeah, professional, you know, professional envy is there, I think, across all industries. And, and when we can release ourselves from it, I think it's helpful. But I think in the arts sector, you know, especially, well, I was going to say screen, but that's not fair. It's only because I only know screen. But, you know, I, I think about my friends like you who are auditioning for things and who's very, existence has been framed around this competitive notion and and this idea that you're only as important as your best most recent whatever and uh and so I I don't know if that affects how I approach my career or my life but I do like to have things on the go and something new to try I'm always yeah. taking a new course or trying to get a new certificate you are like, you're like one of the most like active course takers I know like you're always <laughs> like you just did sign language I know mm -hmm. like you did a screenwriting when you did media with the uh, WIFT folks you know you said as a kid you wanted to become a filmmaker and mm -hmm. then suddenly you found yourself in the world of, of parks and rec and policy making mm -hmm. Not to say that they can't live side by side, but that must have made you scratch your head going, oh, did I, do I have to lose that dream for this dream? For sure. And, you know, when I was saying earlier that it's a little bit of both, I mean, I am always contemplating a career change. And, and I think, I mean, part of my career was necessity. Like part of right. my career trajectory became about the fact that I was successful in this realm. You know, I live in Toronto. 
I have bills to pay that comes with needing uh, a job. And I guess maybe what I would prefer to say is historically, I have been very conflict averse. I still am. But for a long time, I made a lot of fear-based decisions. And Mm. so, you know, COVID for all of the shit that it's thrown at us, and I don't want to diminish any of that in any way, but it brought me to the brink. and, Mm -hmm. And I had to do some very real... I would have preferred to have done this self-reflection and learning in a way that wasn't so painful. But at the same time, that learning did come. And one of the most important pieces for me coming out of that time, locked alone in my tower of one, was, (laughs) you know, with no one coming, begging me to let down my hair. Right. And you grew Uh, your hair purposely. Like, what the hell? Yes, for that reason. But, you know, confronting my fear-based decision-making was one of the most painful, but one of the, the greatest gifts that, that has come out of this time. But it's a constant, like it's a constant. Yeah. I know it's so, not like, and done. I've learned like, that lesson. <laughs> and seen. Yeah. Um, no, it's always, can we get one more? One more for coverage? Like all of that, mm-hmm. all of those things are true. And I think, you know, for me, what's been interesting is as I've actively challenged myself in those places of fear and done things anyway, uh, those have been some of the greatest moments. And so I'm on a really nice path of doing that right now. That's bringing me a lot of joy in different ways, Mm -hmm. but it is still true that me not having fully transitioned into a career in film is still rooted in some level of fear. And the courses, they do a couple of things. One, I genuinely like learning and I am endlessly curious. Like, mm-hmm. and like, that's I'm, like an innate thing about you. That's not yeah. some, that's like an absolute true thing for what I see in you. Yeah. You don't have uh, to challenge yeah. yourself to stay curious. It's just, there. No, 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 maybe I could challenge myself to stay calmer and less curious on some days, but that's um, interesting. What's the, the opposite of curiosity? Is that, is it calm? I mean, no, maybe uh, not calm, but I don't know. Because I, I don't think, think anxiety has to come with curiosity. No, I think for me, it's that uh, my brain will kind of go until I understand something right. uh, or until I get distracted. So if a squirrel goes by and I can redirect my focus, I'm, I'm in good shape. But, okay. uh, but part of it is tied or rooted very much in a sense of understanding for me, right. which in and of itself is tied to a sense of fairness. And so for me, unfairness or... I guess even a better language would be that the worst feeling to me in the world is feeling unwelcome. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, that's such a core. You have mm-hmm. your core beliefs and your core, what's it called? Like pains? Yeah. Oh, I hate yeah. that feeling. And so, you know, that, that sense of fairness is tied to that for me and having an understanding, like if I can understand why something is, my turmoil about maybe not liking it can be limited or reduced a little bit. But if I don't agree with something and I don't understand, that can create a lot of discomfort in my body for me. Yeah. And, and, and then it's like, you know, my mind really kind of grinds. And so, you know, I think the courses for me a little bit are about learning a new thing. I mean, the queer ASL course that I just took uh, and shout out to the queer ASL organization for running an outstanding course. That's something that I've always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, ASL, American Sign Language, has interested me for a long time. And I think being able to communicate with a huge community interests me a lot. Also why I like languages in general. So that part has always been about curiosity. Then there are the courses that I take uh, because I like to be good at something 
before I dip my toe in the, in the water. Okay. And, and that's something that I'm trying to let go. That's something that is tied to the kind of trying to move away from the fear-based decision-making. Um, and we could spend days talking about why that's rooted in shame and discomfort and that feeling of being unwelcome. And, uh, you know, I'll call my therapist and book another five sessions, but yeah, um, but it's true that I think this is hugely relatable. And it's probably why, like, we're, we're two puzzles. We're two puzzle mm-hmm. pieces of the same puzzle where like, I do jump into things before mm-hmm. I know things. And that must drive you bonkers to watch me because you're like, how are you stepping into things? You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> And vice versa, I'm like, I, I, I don't have time to learn the things before I step in. What, what did they say? It's like people make choices based in fear or love, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the more we choose out of love, the better our path is. I'm making that up, but. Sounds legit. I think I, I, saw, I, think yeah. I saw it on a cross stitch. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but and if we didn't, uh, we'll trademark it immediately. But <laughs> it, no, it's true. And I, I do think that that's an area where we complement each other nicely and but it's also interesting because I like to learn. It doesn't like that, that course stuff doesn't rub for me. Like it doesn't mm. feel like I'm, I'm doing something punishing. It, it always feels fantastic. And my shout out to our friends at, at WIF Toronto who run just some of the most outstanding courses for women in the industry. Uh, I cannot get enough of their tax credit courses. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one day I'll be able to accurately explain uh, what grinding means. Wait, are we grinding tax credits or something? Oh, okay. That's a different kind of grinding, but yeah. Okay. I'm with you now. I'm with you now. But yeah. So I think, you know, those courses are fun and and I I do like to collect certificates. That's the honest truth. Yeah. I have a a lovely collection of them and my colleagues make me great certificates for just the most ridiculous reasons because they know that I like to collect them. So that's very sweet. uh, Extraordinary meeting hosts are some of the things that I've earned great accolades out of the generosity of my friends' hearts, not necessarily at all related to my skills I get it so if you are I mean as I said I don't think you're alone with stepping into fear-based choices Mm -hmm. is there something now that you've taught yourself and going oh Kathleen you're stepping into this and you're making choices out of fear and you can sort of reset have you got that skill when you're younger you just make choices and then in reflection you go oh that was that was out of Mm -hmm. fear can you, can you make those choices now with more awareness? Yes, I think so. I think, you know, one of the questions that I check in with myself now, when I kind of have that first gut feeling like, oh, this, this feels scary is eh, you should probably do it, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and learning the difference between real threat and perceived fear. You know, my body is very good at telling me when there's a real threat, but as someone with anxiety, your body tells you that a lot of things are threats. Right. Um, and I also have a lot of allergies, which is my body telling me this is true, right. but I have a lot of very severe food allergies, which is my body convincing itself that it's allergic to something um, or having this reaction because it perceives something as a threat, absolute medical definition. Um, and so, you know, I think it's been about like learning to gauge that reaction and learning to meditate and studying mindfulness practices and learning to kind of slow down, listen to the cues and understand, oh, this is scary because it's unfamiliar. Um, Mm. Or this is scary because I might make a mistake. When's the last time you had that self-discussion? Oh, probably three hours ago. (laughs) Um, 
but, <laughs> daily, daily. I mean, it, 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 I, I, I joke, but it does, it does come up more and more. And, and the difference now is that it's not like a sit down with myself. Okay. I need to make a pro and con list, although, you know, triple Virgo love a color coded pro and con list, but you know, it does become easier. That's like, okay, right. well, what, what about this is scary? Why is it scary? You know, I had a great conversation with our friend Veronica Martin, not long ago about making a mistake and and she was teasing me and welcoming me to the land of mistake makers and I don't like that feeling historically and so freeing myself up mm. to just make mistakes left right and center has been very liberating yeah. and uh, was an actual task that my therapist gave me to to make mistakes so what did you do them. what were the mistakes you made can you share them with us Oh yeah. I mean, the first thing wasn't a mistake, but it was like, it was just kind of a step away from perfectionism and it was Christmas 2020. And I was wrapping a gift for my mother and I did not like the corners on the wrapping when I taped them down and I left it. I did not rewrap that gift. (laughs) And did she not accept it? Oh no, she didn't care at all. So of course she was like, oh no, thank you. (laughs) No, I I will not. I mean, she may have silently be judging me. She'll tell me later, but you know, she was a very good gift. She is a very good gift wrapper. So (laughs) she's a gift entirely, actually. But bigger things like that. And then I think more recently it's been about being less concerned about the perfect state of something. So Uh. not spending extra time rewording an email or doing yet another pass on a report Uh or not kind of willfully making, putting in a poor effort, but, but not being concerned if it doesn't meet my exacting standards and learning to adjust those standards. Mm -hmm. So how do you think, I mean, pulling in your world of producing and writing, Mm -hmm. because I know that also is a passion that is, I think that there was probably at a time where you could have gone into policy and you could have gone into full-time Uh, Mm -hmm. filmmaking and perhaps Mm -hmm. it was fear of the fear of not having a paycheck that led you that way which is just the way it goes like I think you know arts are absolutely the most unstable thing in the world because I know you did a lot of producing you know with Mm -hmm. um, short films and things like Mm -hmm. that did that Mm -hmm. like challenge your work with Parks and Rec or did that feed it? It did both. So it that my producing work happened just as I was moving from service delivery, like actual operations into policy. Okay. So that cluster of shorts that I produced at the time was really kind of, it bookended that period. And so part of it really, really helped because working in service delivery in the municipal level, especially in recreation, you have oversight over staffing, hiring, training, health and safety, programming, standards, budget, you know, you kind of have to be a a jack of all trades and a master of every single one, in fact. Mm -hmm. And so that really fueled my knowledge and my ability to be a good producer, in my opinion, because I had all of those checkpoints in my head. So set safety was top of mind. And and we were working, you know, a lot of us were inexperienced, we were cutting our teeth together on, on the same films. And so having that kind of holistic view of the production and all of the little pieces that go together was something that transferred very easily. And then the other side of that was learning so much more about policy has made me very interested in film policy and in the film funding model. Like Mm -hmm. 
you know, the funding model in Canada is so different from the US and that is rooted in historic political decisions. It's rooted in quality control. It's rooted in, you know, the private donation structure that we used to have that led to what some determined was not a good quality of film and wasn't representing what they wanted the national film body or work of Canada to be, which led to different budget decisions and tax structures. So, you know, that piece of it absolutely fascinates me now. And I genuinely, you know, kind of wonder and, and strategize on what that might look like in the future and how that might change. Like we know that the funding model here relies so heavily on the structure that you're pursuing and, you know, acquisitions and commitments from broadcasters, which makes you eligible for this pot of money and half of this pot of money, but not this third pot of money. And, and you know, producers are piecing together all of these kind of chunks, uh, which is very different. You know, I have associates in the U.S. who have similar backgrounds to me who have produced a lot of shorts and they fund their projects very quickly through private donations that are tax deductible. Yeah. And so it feels like there's a disconnect in Canada with that kind of thing. When there's some people that, you know, $5,000 is nothing to them and $5,000 to a young filmmaker, not even a young, a new filmmaker or an old filmmaker, a filmmaker would be like, that's great. I could do a lot with that. And there seems Mm -hmm. like a little disconnect there. It's very interesting. And and learning the policy behind it, like as a policy nerd is fascinating Um, because I do wonder if if there's a different structure, a happy medium that could be influenced by good policy, what I would say would be good policy that would, you know, meet the needs of the screen industry that would allow for some level of private investment in a meaningful way, but still maintain, you know, the level of production quality that, you know, is just out there. Like Canadian talent is outstanding and Mm -hmm. it's you know I mean right now it's so fun to watch all of this amazing content I'm I'm probably paying more attention to Canadian tv now than I am um film but it's it's fascinating to see this content take off and the international markets consume it and so I do I that that part of it those two pieces have fed each other for me you know like Mm -hmm. I would have never in a million years thought about the historical film policy in Canada as no. something that would interest me previously, but now it really does. And I do wonder, probably to the, the dismay of many who like the current system, but it's something that I have my eye on. I'm, I'm really curious about what other models may, may come. Yeah. So how do you think you're going to marry these passions of yours? Like, do you think that there's going to be a film that you can do the policies for that takes place in Mexico and has a only hot dogs served for craft. I don't know. I'm trying to fit all your passions. Yeah. I mean, we haven't talked about my passion for hot dogs. I haven't so, even dipped. Uh, the podcast isn't long enough. We haven't even hit it. Uh, hot dogs. Yeah. I should probably make a documentary, a treaty co-pro between Mexico and Canada on hot dogs. And maybe I could find a hot dog vendor located next to a city hall or a parliament building where we could pull in some I mean I'm leaning forward I I think this sounds interesting I'm just you know I'm I'm just spitballing here but no I mean I think for me you know like certainly working as a consultant and looking at how I can influence policy you know kind of like big p policy um, politically but also 
you know, what I would call smaller P policy and just very clearly set experience. What does that look like for folks and how do we integrate set safety, certainly as we're seeing in the industry at large now, to be more than covering up cables? I don't dismiss it because there are amazing professionals who have been doing that work for ages. But I, you know, I look at the success of intimacy coordinators and I look at the success of wellness coordinators and how that is starting to become mainstream. And so that is an area that interests me very much as a consultant to kind of look at how those pieces can marry and how we can make meaningful improvements. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, and it's tough. It's tough in an industry like film where historically the desire to end really long work days has been met uh, an equally kind of aggressive desire to not end them because you know, if you have a couple of gigs a year and some of those gigs are on a big shoot that's paying a lot of overtime, that could fund you and you can, right. you know, you can take some time off. And so it's interesting to to hear where those things kind of bump up against one another. So I think that interests me. And certainly, you know, getting back into the creative space for myself interests mm-hmm. me. You know, most of the work that I've done in production has been on other people's content. And so you know, getting back into my own creative content is definitely something that I have my eye on for 2022. You know, looking at telling the stories that are important to me, how they may have changed from when I first contemplated them. Mm. Do you have a story in your heart? I know you specifically choose projects that are connected in some way to the LGBTQ plus community. Mm. Do you have a story that's in your heart that you're like, if I do one story, if I tell one story on screen, it's going to be this Mm. one? I don't know that I have one. I have two that are both meaningful to me. One is a feature length animation that has a lot of work. It's about Christmas. Christmas movies are my favorite. Um, (laughs) Of course. uh, Of course. And uh, it has to do with a a young mouse and and their grandmother. And, you know, my grandmother was my favorite person. So that that story feels the most personal Mm. in that way. Mm -hmm. And then I have a short uh, that I want to do, which is more about square dancing than it is about uh, anything else. And it's called Square. Uh, But it does focus on an LGBT teen. And so that's very close to home for me, both nerdy and queer at the same time. I mean, both these projects I connect to instantly, like the relationship between a granddaughter and grandmother, for sure. Mm -hmm. Like I lived with my grandmother for many years. Mm -hmm. We looked the same. She was 105 when she died. Like I just, I love it. So I'm, I'm in for that. And then also uh, anything about square dancing. I don't know why, but I I'm in. I was going to say, I feel like the square dancing is going to also be the the same movie that incorporates hot dogs. I I can't explain why. I just feel like these things are going to sometimes natural. It's just a natural step. Now, what's stopping you from taking a step into either one of those projects? Because I can see, I mean, just because I know you a little bit more than some of the guests I speak to, I can see the craving for creativity. Mm-hmm. And I and I wonder what's the thing that's going to be like, okay, I have to do it now, as opposed to, oh, I want to do something. Yeah, it's getting into that territory of I have to do it. And more so, I think I have to write it, like I have to get it out, whether it's made, well, we should all be so lucky, uh, but I have to get it out. And I think, you know, for the past two years, I would say that time and emotional energy has been in the way. Being, yeah. you know, being a public servant, especially in that first year of the pandemic, not to suggest that the plight was any worse. I mean, I'm not comparing myself to healthcare workers in any way, but personally, I have never felt so obligated to serve. Mm -hmm. the residents of the area that I work for 
as I did during that time. Like I've never felt a greater call to public service. And, and I'm a very proud public servant. I, I really enjoy having a job that comes with a sense of contribution. That is very important to me, mm -hmm. a contribution bigger than myself. And so that felt like the most important thing. And then I would say after a while, the most important thing became survival. You know, it was a very hard mental health time for me. Mm -hmm. Like I talk about kind of going to the edge. That's, that's really what I would explain it to be like. Mm -hmm. That healing process is ongoing. That healing process has been active for over a year. I've, I've never felt better, I will also say. And so now it feels like a really nice time of reflection and the urgency to do those creative things is coming up. I think I'm also battling myself a little bit because I can be loyal to a fault. I'm mindful of the commitments that I have and, and the things that I've done and, and where I still need to invest some time that would pull away from that creative time. But I think that it's a nice, like it's a nice time of reflection for me. And that, and that creative piece is, is pushing. I can feel mm -hmm. it. You know, I, can I can see it. Yeah. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure that, uh, that it is visible to the people who know me. Um, and the people that I work with the most closely. So, so it's exciting. It's very exciting to be mm -hmm. in that space and to consider what that might look like and to think about being creative in that way again. Yeah, I guess it's like, for me, everybody's got that project in their heart, right? That they're like, I got to do this. At some point, I got to do this. But then it is like the tipping point of when it's not just something that you dream about, but it's actually a necessity mm -hmm. to tell that yeah. story. And then Laura Teresa, who I just spoke the other day to said that the element of, um, that you might have X number of films to make in your lifetime. She's the director. Mm. And she mm. said, if a film takes two years, I might have six more films left in me. Yeah. And that to me was like, holy fuck. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. so much like I got to get to work, but I got to like push away those boundaries that are stopping me from doing the work or yeah. I got to figure that out. So yeah, clear the path. Yeah, absolutely. I just see you as such a creative heart. And I know that it uh, comes with such it's an organized creative heart, <laughs> but I do like, I do see that. And I, I, I'm here for it. Like I'm here to uh, make a casserole when you are on your short film. Set. Oh God, please let it be a hot dog casserole. I've, I've uh, never done it, but I'm not saying I won't. Yeah. So, so I, I see that. And I also see like the strain of what this pandemic did. Like, I think you're maybe one of the most responsible people I know. <laughs> and I've learned that from you, like in a, in a really beautiful way, not only responsible, like make sure the, the oven's off when you leave the house in the mm -hmm. looking after people's hearts. And I think that's actually one of the things I fell in love with you about first was, you know, we had some really tough discussions in firecracker department about the language we use and making sure mm -hmm. that's as welcoming as possible. Cause it's almost paramount to make, make people feel like they have a place there. You continue to teach me about that kind of responsibility. I'm not saying it's not without the weight that you talk about. Like you must sure. feel it all the time, that kind of care that you care so much. It's, it, it can't help but be, be a weight. Who did you get that from? Who did you get that <laughs> skill from? I don't know. Both my parents are extraordinary, generous hearts, both of them and uh, different, different skills, but both of them care a lot about the people around them. Mm -hmm. Both of them believe in service. My mom still drives friends of hers who are actively undergoing cancer treatments to their appointments. They don't drive. She did that all throughout the pandemic. 
my dad at this very moment is at a shift at Global Medic packing packages. That's just the house that I grew up in. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, not none of us are perfect, but that's the example that I saw in the world. And mm-hmm. my mother has uh, just the most extraordinary friendships that she fosters. Um, my dad is a is a really fun guy and funny guy and and they're both like they're both extraordinary in this way you know like I've I've told you when I first started coming to firecracker brunches and started to you know meet different people and meet different performers you know it's like oh Jocelyn Zuko was at brunch today uh she did this episode of Shit's Creek and then my parents you know my parents loved Designated Survivor so they watched her episode of Designated Survivor you know this is this is them right like if I if I told them that you had a show, they would be in the front row supporting you, not knowing anything other than you're in my orbit and, yeah. and that I said this was happening. So I have such admiration for that. They have a generosity of spirit that is seemingly unmatched. And right. so uh, I learned that from them. And the responsibility part in different ways. My dad is the safety conscious guy, like, you know, going to a sleepover, know where the fire alarm is, know where the emergency exit is. We'll talk about what that did on the other side privately around a campfire with beers and a hot dog. But <laughs> that that part of responsibility came from him. And and my mother, you know, equally so, like had a an interesting job and and uh, a level of responsibility with that and um, is very good at organizing and and you know pulling things together. And and so I think really from both of them. And then the exacting standards part, I think that came from everybody. My grandmother once asked me uh, what happened to the other 3% when I came home with a 97% average. So, okay. Um, <laughs> All right. Oh, you know, I was like, but grandma, that's my average. <laughs> that's not Listen, even a mark. I just found a bunch of my port- report cards and First of all, I was not a good student. This is something that I've obviously blocked out of my mind. Not a good student. And then even in my acting report cards, which I think is ridiculous, it was all good, satisfactory, satisfactory. So if I had really read those, obviously I'm not a good reader. I would not have stayed in this business. Yeah, I wasn't a good student. I was a strategic student. I got good marks, but being good, having good marks and being a good student are not the same. And uh, I was a strategic student and, and that has stayed with me, that, that element of strategy, that understanding mm. of who your audience is, what you want them to take away, what you need from them, that has served me in both areas as a producer, certainly being able to pitch something and in terms of policy and mm. writing, because those go hand in hand. But I, I got good marks, but I was not a good student. Oh <laughs> I would gosh. procrastinate, I would cram, and I would write my papers in the voice that I knew interested my professors. Wow. So even like, oh, it's this element of strategy. I don't know. I'm sure somebody will have something to say about survival uh, when they think about that. So what do you do to regroup then after like the challenges of the first year of the pandemic or mm-hmm. after being the body, mind and spirit caregiver that you are? How do you sort of shut things down and fill the tank back up again? I really miss running. I was running a lot. I was very close to my 5K personal best during the pandemic and I've injured myself. So I'm, I'm getting back into hiking. I really like to be in nature. I like hiking all year round. I've recently given myself permission to totally disconnect. Uh, I'm doing on the weekends, which is lovely. That's been really nice. Like just yeah. not feeling obligated to check in and not even obligated, but that compulsion, you know, like I, I'm, I can be addicted to my phone. I can be addicted to crappy social media and finding things that are different than that. 
audiobooks I've recently gotten into podcasts too over the pandemic. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've discovered a lot of really great authors and voices and women who inspire me over the past few years. And those pieces are, are kind of what I do. I've gotten very greedy about my, my Saturday shutdown. Mm-hmm. I don't know about your weekends. Now that you're sort of training your body and your mind to like shut down more on the weekends, it's harder to allow people into that space. Yes, for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, right now I'm, it's very easy to shut off. We'll see how long that lasts, mm-hmm. but I think it's been remarkable to learn that the world in fact keeps spinning when I am not checking Twitter. Slower, just slower without you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it, it has been, it might be harder if I was doing that without another force, but I think that it also has let me just enjoy things more, mm-hmm. not being connected to the phone, um, protecting that space a little bit, and really just existing in the world and not worrying about what I'm missing, what I'm not paying attention to, and what I can look at another day. And, and that's something that is, I think, uh, a lesson that I've been unlearning, perhaps is the right language, over the past number of years, mm-hmm. and understanding that I don't have to be on all the time. And in fact, I am a better partner, friend, colleague, human leader, when I am not on all the time, and I give myself that that space. But I mean, you're talking to someone who used to take her only vacation from her Monday to Friday job to do an intense five week contract with TIFF. So that's right. uh, But like a change is as good as a rest, right? Like I do, I do think like, one of the things that I learned the most, I think I was in a really like, not a really dark place, but just like, you know, not uh, things weren't clicking along in December. And Matt and I just went away and just changing the air. Like mm-hmm. it was just such a relief to not be in the space that we were in or have the routine that we had. It just shakes it up enough to give you a little bit of perspective, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's true. All right. Look. I got other questions, but it's going to have to happen over hot dogs and wine, which is quite the combo. You've got such a beautiful way of guiding people, Kathleen. Like I don't ever feel it's funny because I think you feel like you're harsher than you really are. I think sometimes you're like, here's some tough love sneakers. And I'm like, you think that's tough? I don't know. I've just really enjoyed watching you. I learn constantly from you. If I'm not learning directly, I watch you interact. I watch you through your socials on how you you behave. And uh, it's, I'm just really grateful. I'm really grateful to have you in my, my world. It's mutual, my friend. Oh man. It's mutual. Remember when we hugged way too long when we first saw each other? <laughs> Cause you gave me some <laughs> magazines so I can collage. And we we're like, this is going to be awkward. And it wasn't, it was just like delightful. <laughs> yes. I do remember hugging. Wow. Did we ever undervalue hugs before this time hey? right Whew. I let yeah. I don't let go of people very easily and now and like people I think are like <laughs> you know when people are like I'm a long hugger and it used to be like all right buddy step back but now it's like I'm the long hugger and I have yes to, yes two things that I that I love coming out of this whole thing are return to hugs and uh, and people being really invested in them if they're comfortable with them obviously consent is key you know, for me, this was, this started before the pandemic, um, but telling your friends that you love them and removing this stigma, I don't know if it's a stigma, but removing this discomfort with telling people that we love them. And that can take shape in a number of ways. 
but I think that's been one of the greatest things. And I hope, you know, I feel right now we're sliding a little bit. We're moving very quickly and, and I, it feels like we're abandoning some of the things that we promised we weren't going to abandon when we were first in this pandemic space. And my hope for us uh, as a community, as a collective, is that we don't push so hard to get back to the normal that so many of us were hoping we wouldn't return to. And so I hope that that stays. I hope that that acknowledgement of how valuable we are to each other um, the acknowledgement of, of how important it is and necessary it is to tell people that we love them stays mm-hmm. from romantic to platonic to, you know, people that we haven't spent a lot of time with just, you know, it was really great meeting you. And I really enjoyed our conversation, whatever it is. I hope, mm-hmm. I hope that that kindness and loving spirit stays. Mm-hmm. Can you give me like a little 101, how to recover from a mistake? Because here's one of the things I've learned from you is the awareness of the power of language and whether that's uh, saying, um, calling people folks instead of guys, whether that's uh, being super aware of people's pronouns, whether that's making space for just all communities, mm-hmm. whatever the community, also making space for being human. Because mm-hmm. I've seen people destroy themselves when they've said guys, knowing that they mm-hmm. didn't want to say it. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, the, the way they beat themselves up so much, I'm like, oh my gosh please allow yourself a little bit of grace. What's your 101 of, and also for yourself, like you said, you're not great at making mistakes. What's your 101 of recovering? I think acknowledge it uh, politely and briefly if it needs to be acknowledged. And I think not belaboring the point. So for me, I'm probably good at the first part. The second part, I have room for improvement, um, which I say without self-judgment, like, you know, there's give yourself the space and the grace, but I think acknowledge it. And, and if it's not coming naturally, then, and you genuinely want to improve, frankly, practice it. You know, like if you're like, if you're, if you're giving a speech and you're going to welcome folks, like I have colleagues who hate folks and I start many, many meetings with hi friends, and, and, and some of my colleagues, you know, they're like, we are not friends, but to me, that's less important than, than walking in and being like, Hey guys, um, or, mm-hmm. or my, you know, like, or Hey ladies, like what am I, when some of my colleagues say, Hey ladies. And I'm like, Oh my God, I am so not a lady. Yeah. Um, I'd rather be your I, friend than a lady. <laughs> yeah. I remember, Oh, the guest escapes me. I wish I could remember because I'd love to give them credit, but my friend Sandra and I working for TIFF we were dropping a guest off at the hotel and the three of us roll out of this giant Escalade, like just beats blasting. And the, you know, the, the, the concierge comes over and says, Oh, I didn't, I didn't expect three ladies to step out of this car. And at the same time, all three of us said, good thing. We're not ladies. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I think in terms of mistakes, acknowledge it move on and commit to do better but the commitment to do better has to be more than performative mm-hmm. it has to be the effort it has to be understanding and if you need to know the why reach out you know i'm always happy to engage in these conversations probably more so than i ought to be but i think that that's important acknowledge it move on mm-hmm. and put in the effort yeah i love it i love where we've come to and i love where we're going i love that people are more um, open to hearing gentle nudges you know, here's a gentle nudge, you're using this and that's not their pronoun or here's a gentle nudge. And people are way less sensitive than they used to be, I think. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm proud of folks for standing up for themselves too and, mm -hmm. and doing so where that's safe. Certainly there are a lot of spaces where it's still not in this climate, scary times, especially mm -hmm. south of the border right now. So mm -hmm. we push where we have the privilege and the power mm -hmm. um, and we do that for ourselves and for the folks around us that don't have that same privilege and power. Love it. All right, turn the tables. What kind All of right. question you got for me? I have a whole list. I have, okay. I have a whole, of course I have a whole list. What does a good decision feel like for you? When you've made a good decision, what does it feel like for you? Uh, playful. Like it just feels playful. It feels like putting the right pair of shoes on to be able to, to run. And if you put heels on and it's there and you can't run in those heels because some heels you can run in, but uh, yeah. I wore heels the other day for a date and uh, no. I'm still paying the price. My yeah. Achilles has a lot to say about it. My Achilles heel is my Achilles heel. Okay. I have one more and then I'm going to, I'll let you go. How do you want people to feel when they leave your company? I want people to feel like they've had a good workout from laughing. Like I want people to feel like exhausted and drunk from laughter. Excellent. I love that you were rubbing your ribs as you yeah. said that. <laughs> yeah. Just like good little, yeah. Or like the ache of like a good, and I find that too, like, you know, some of our meetings that we have at the end of it, I'm just like, I, like mentally exhausted, but also my face is exhausted from smiling or laughing. That, that's yes. a good sign. Yeah. The laugh's so hard that you stop making noise. That's always a good measure yeah. for me. Yes. Yes. I love that too. Um, mm -hmm. How do you feel like you've made a good decision? What does that look like for you? I think ease and a confidence. So I don't think about it again is probably. Yeah. The, mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to say. Can I go back and just say what Kathleen yes. said? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're Absolutely. right. And I, I think that like, it's that gut, right? Like the more yep. I'm listening to my gut, I know when I say, I think we should do A versus B and my gut's like, mm, then mm -hmm. it's not right. And if I don't listen to my gut, then I'm going to feel uncertain moving forward too. I've started to do that more in meetings rather than, than asking people their firm recommendation. We've been making a lot of progress recently, uh, much faster than we normally would by asking that very question. What's your gut check? Mm. You don't have to commit. What do you, just tell me what you feel right in this moment. And then we'll pick it up at the next time we come together. And that's been very liberating freeing mm -hmm. people from having to commit to something and just letting them say what's in their gut. And then they usually get to their own conclusion faster. It's, it's great. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's put gut check more in, in my language. That's what I like. Did you learn anything or was there anything surprising that you discovered uh, from being a leader? Yeah. Good and bad. Certainly in a position of formal leadership, uh, I was not aware of my influence, the uh, authority that my voice had. So very practical things like I had to train myself to speak last at a meeting because if I shared my opinion at the, at the start, it just ended the conversation mm -hmm. and people, and people, not that they didn't feel safe, but they didn't feel that their voice had value. So that was a, a, a hard lesson, but also that you can influence and you can influence softly. Um, one of the things that I'm most proud of, which is so silly, I've worked on budget. Um, in the past and preparing an annual budget of $200 million. It's a lot of pressure. It's public money. You don't want to fuck it up. And it's a really stressful period. And for whatever reason, a 12 month budget takes 14 months to make. I can't explain it mathematically. Um, <laughs> oh no, that makes my head explode a little bit. And, and so at our kickoff meeting, I brought everybody a toy dinosaur and I still get messages from friends who are no longer on that budget team or colleagues who tell me uh, I'm starting a new job, but I'm taking my dinosaur. And so those soft moments of influence mm. um, as a leader 
I think are, those are my favorite. Those are my favorite. I would rather that, you know, that's something that you take away. And even the tiniest subtlety to them bringing a small amount of joy or humor to their next budget meeting. Uh, fill in the blank. To me, a firecracker is. Curious, kind, uh, and a helper. Oh, sounds like you just defined yourself. Uh, what do you want to be best known for? Making people feel seen. If this was a movie, your life was a movie, what has been like a climactic turning point in this movie for you? Saying yes to the things that I'm afraid of. Uh, I said yes to a, one of my first paid film contracts last fall. Um, it was tiny. It was great. It scared the shit out of me. I made a gazillion mistakes um, and it was fantastic. Love it. I love it. What, uh, what's something that people don't know about you? I am obsessed with the Virgin of Guadalupe. Yeah. That's not something that everybody would put in your, in your bio for sure. Um, what's something that you haven't done, but you know, you have to do. Write my film. Hundo P. Hundo um, P. Yeah. Hundo P on that one. What, what makes you feel powerful? Empowering others. <laughs> Who's a firecracker in your world that you can shine a light on? My mama is probably uh, the best firecracker in my world. And outside of immediate circle, I would say somebody that has really very quietly influenced me over the past few years is Natalie Young Lai, mm. mm-hmm. who I 100%. feel is uh, not just a creative powerhouse, but single-handedly changing the landscape in Toronto. She would say, I am certain she is not single-handedly doing it, which is of, of course true, but her quiet leadership and steady pressure to change things really, really moves my soul. Mm-hmm. I knew Natalie a little bit before interviewing her for our podcast. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually kind of glad because I think I would have been way more intimidated because now that I know more about her, I'm like, oh man, mm-hmm. she's just a extraordinary person. Yeah. We have a lot of mutual connections. I've met her once very, very briefly. And so the fact that she does not know me from Adam does not matter to me at all. I am a big fan. I am very curious to know uh, how as an individual, how as a consultant, how as an organization, I can do more work to support her work because she's somebody that, uh, yeah, just absolutely groundbreaking and inspiring. Uh, my final question is advice yep. to a, a younger Kathleen. You'll do it in your own time. Don't worry about time. Just keep at it. You'll do it in your own time. Yeah. I mean, that's in, in retrospect, that is such a great thing to say. It's so hard to know at the time, even now in our later years Mm -hmm. and not in our teens, it's so hard to recognize that it'll all happen when it's supposed to happen. Yeah. Or how do you teach yourself patience? I think more and more I'm learning to trust my gut and learning to, to trust that when I move forward from a place of kindness, not at the cost of myself, but when I move forward with purpose from a place of kindness, that, that the things that I am seeking will come to me. Thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for, you know, thank you just for being the Kathleen that you are in this journey of firecracker department. We wouldn't be where we are now. We wouldn't, we won't be where we are next and your head and heart help. And also all your nerdy business speak also help. I will never say no. If you ever say to me like, oh, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy on you. It makes me actually lean in because I'm like, I don't know what you're about to say. And I'm probably going to need to learn this stuff. So can we talk about your strategic outcomes? Always.
always just tell me exactly what a strategic outcome is. And then, yes, we can talk about it. Excellent. Well, thank you, my friend. What a, what a joy to spend what a joy. that afternoon with you. One more when we're hanging out of the dock, avoiding the rain. <laughs> For when yeah. we were like, it's raining. Is it really raining? <laughs> and we were like getting soaked. And we we're like, no, no, it's raining. We have to go inside. And then it stopped. Canoeing in the rain. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Sign me up. Okay, my friend. Mwah. Mwah. I love you to bits. I love you too. the film producer policy nerd with an obsession for hot dogs come on who can't love somebody like that and here's the other thing kathleen's been working in the government since she was 15 years old you know like she's still pushing her boundaries she's still challenging herself and she still wants to reach different goals and i so admire that i just do i think she's an extraordinary person and to be able to be creative and also be the self-professed policy nerd that she says she is, I think that's extraordinary. Now for the latest updates on Real Culture, follow them on Twitter at RealCultureCA, that's R-E-E-L, or on Instagram at RealCultureRealChange, and that's R-E-E-L-R-E-A-L, or go to their website, RealCulture.ca. Also, just a reminder about our Spring Short Story Contest. You have until May 22nd to enter. And for all the details, head over to our website, firecrackerdepartment.com. Let us know what resonated with you in this podcast by dropping us a comment on our Instagram or tweet us at firecrackerdept. Or, you know, you can always leave a review. Sure helps us bring this podcast to more people when you leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Or you can send me an email. Yeah. That feels so retro, but I will take it at firecrackerdepartment at gmail.com. I mean, we'd just love to hear from all of you. To see what we have going on, visit our website at firecrackerdepartment.com. And while you're there, if you haven't already, subscribe to our new bi-monthly newsletter to get the inside scoop of everything that's going on in the Firecracker Department. Ah, there's something for everyone. Like we have our weekly writing bursts, weekly Sunday brunches, mentorship workshops, monthly wellness mini moments, script readings, the monthly blog post, podcast guests. Oh my gosh, so, so much. And if you're feeling like, oh, I want to know what's going on tomorrow, well, we can tell you. You just have to go over to our handy dandy event calendar on our website and check it out there. So go on out there. Use some of what you heard Kathleen talking about or go over to our Instagram page or our private Facebook group and soak in some of the inspiration that the firecrackers are dishing out these days. Let me know what you're doing today. Tell me what kind of creative action you're taking. And thanks for joining me today. I'm Naomi, and this has been Firecracker Department. Winnie Wong is our Firecracker head producer. Follow her at wonder underscore Wong on Instagram and wonder underscore Wong 8 on Twitter. This episode is edited by Shane Stoltz. You can follow them at Shane Stoltz, all one word, and Shane with a Y. This intro was written by the one and only wonderful Winnie Wong. That's right, she's a triple W. The rest of the team comes at you from Toronto, Los Angeles, Austin, London, Dubai, and truly from all over the world. Thanks also to Jeff Malutinovic and Igor Korea for our theme music. And thanks to you. Yeah, you. Sitting there, driving there, walking there, working out there, and taking time to listen. We know there's a lot of options out there, and we really appreciate you choosing us. We hope to see you at maybe brunch, maybe the writing workshop. And until next time, thank you for listening to the Firecracker Department. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 